You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Some dramatic new twists tonight in the ongoing scandal at the BC Legislature. The mystery instigated by the Speaker so far has led to two top officials placed on administrative leave while police investigate. And tonight the Speaker is promising to resign if he's proven wrong. Keith Baldry reports. The Legislature Management Committee usually doesn't attract much attention when it meets. That wasn't the case today, as a jam committee room heard from the man at the center of a political firestorm. Perhaps is now a time for me to make a brief statement. And what a statement. It went on and on. The speaker saying he received disturbing information literally in his first week on the job more than a year ago. Very serious concerns were brought to me about certain activities that were taking place within the Legislative Assembly. And he dropped a few clues about what may be behind the allegations that forced the clerk and the sergeant-at-arms from office. If I ever see something that I think is inappropriate in terms of spending, that I pursue that with due diligence, there would not be a taxpayer in this province who wouldn't want me to do that. They would also want me to pay attention to the workplace environment. Plekis repeatedly lashed out at the MLAs, demanding they support a forensic audit of legislature offices and threatening to resign if people aren't outraged at what is found. If the outcome of those audits did not outrage the public, did not outrage taxpayers, did not make them throw up, I will resign as Speaker. His anger flashed several times. Nothing, 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 nothing could be further than the truth. That I think we're on to something here. And it needs to be fixed. And it needs to be fixed through the Speaker's office because it hasn't been fixed for years. In the end, he said he was supremely confident his judgment will be vindicated. I want them to get an absolutely complete picture. And that is going to happen. Yeah, never heard that kind of stuff from a speaker before. A lot of drama in that meeting, mm -hmm. Keith Baldry. What was the reaction when it was all over? A lot of drama. People were in there. It was actually jam-packed. Uh, I've never seen anything like this before. People were almost stupefied at Plekis' performance, uh, speaking the way he did. Nobody expected that. Spilled out in the hallway, caught up with uh, Liberal House Leader Mary Polak, who again was, was stunned at what she heard and saw in the House. Here's Mary Polak. That was one of the strangest meetings I have ever been involved in, especially when one considers the Speaker's role as chair of that meeting. Um, I really don't know what to make of it. It was, it was quite shocking. I think she speaks for a lot of people who had never witnessed something like that before. But where does it go from here? That, that committee is going to meet again on the 19th. I don't think they're going to revisit this issue, but who knows with Plekis' uh, pattern of behavior here. One thing, though, that's developed today, Daryl Plekis, by threatening to resign, has upped the ante here. He's gone all in on his career here. He's tied it to the outcome of this investigation, and that's got to make the NDP nervous because they need him in that office. If he leaves, that reduces the majority by a critical seat and makes the, the existence of this government somewhat precarious. So the drama continues. Yeah, lots of consequences, uh, uh, potential for consequences, Keith. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Just last night, a dire warning from health officials about carbon monoxide poisoning after 17 incidents this week alone. And then this morning, a CO poisoning involving a family of five airlifted to hospital. Nadia Stewart joins us with more. And Nadia, thankfully, it sounds like at least the family was rescued in time. 
Yeah, it looks like they're all going to be fine. They were in stable condition when they arrived in Vancouver. Now all five of them are inside the hyperbaric chamber. Dr. Bruce Campana and his team are closely monitoring the recovery of their latest patients. Now inside this hyperbaric chamber, a family of five from Barrier suffering from yet another carbon monoxide exposure. They're going to be in there for two and a half hours. Then we're going to bring them out for half an hour. Everybody's going to go to the bathroom, have something to eat, and they're going to go back in again for another two hours. The family is doing much better now. This after being exposed to the deadly gas inside their home just after 7 this morning. It's believed the source of the exposure was a wood stove, one the family was planning on fixing. And when we arrived at the house, the all five family members were already outside and in the ambulance getting checked out by the paramedics there. Mom wakes me up this morning and says... Look at their front window, there's fire trucks and ambulances. For neighbors, it was a dramatic scene and a stark reminder. We're definitely going out to buy a detector for sure because we don't have one and that would be pretty scary for us as well to wake up and, okay, <laughs> this is a scary situation. We're told there was a working carbon monoxide detector inside this family's home. In fact, it's what alerted them. Still, their exposure was significant. Two of the children were in and out of consciousness. Doctors here are praising first responders in Barrier and Vancouver for moving so quickly. This was an absolutely clockwork uh, team effort by the people who started in Barrier, called immediately here, arranged patient transfer network who were phenomenal. It's the fastest, most coordinated effort I've ever seen in carbon monoxide management. Well, Nadia, doctors again tonight stressing the importance of getting a carbon monoxide detector. Yeah, Dr. Campana is saying that people might even want to consider giving this as a Christmas gift. He could obviously can save lives. He's saying at least two are needed in your home, one on each floor. If you can, put one in every room. Back to you, Chris. All right, Nadia Stewart, thank you. Signs of a softening real estate market are expected to be reflected in your upcoming property assessment. After years of increases, some homeowners can expect to see a drop in the value of their homes. But it won't be that way across the board. Ted Chernecki reports. At once prized possession, the single-family home seems to have priced itself out of Metro Vancouver's real estate market. It, more than any other type of housing, is now seeing the biggest drop in assessed value. So much so that BC's assessment authority is sending 50,000 letters to warn homeowners who will be most impacted come January when assessments arrive in the mail. In some areas of Metro Vancouver, in the single-family dwelling market, we are seeing some slight decreases in the 5 to 10 percent range. The condo market is holding its value better, but even in certain previously heated neighborhoods, prices are falling for the first time in years. That's potentially good news for would-be owners. For people that are trying to get into the market, it's perfect because I know a lot of uh, nieces and nephews that recently got married and they yeah. can't buy nothing right now, right? Because it's even Surrey can't get anything for under 800 grand now. We may not be able to qualify living in a huge house anymore, but we're looking to sacrifice and move into a condo. A property appraiser would evaluate all of the following. If your assessed value goes down, do not expect a drop in your property taxes unless your property is dropping more than the average. If all go down together, that tax bill will stay the same, even in areas where there have been significant drops. 
Some areas in Vancouver, uh, the North Shore, Richmond, uh, South Surrey, some areas of Burnaby, in the single-family market, they can expect to see a decrease in their assessed value from 5 to 10% over last year. So that's around the July 1 uh, market. Since July 1st, Metro Vancouver's real estate market might have dropped considerably more, but you won't see that reflected until next year's assessment. Ted Chernaki, Global News. As part of the ongoing effort to crack down on gang violence, the city of Surrey is getting its own Vancouver-style bar watch program. It's called the Inadmissible Patrons Program. Catherine Urquhart has more on how it works and who it's targeting. When shots were fired outside a sushi restaurant in Surrey last year, one bullet struck a man well-known to police. A second bullet went through a restaurant window. Mounties in Surrey are hoping to prevent similar incidents with their new inadmissible patrons program, which bans gang members from bars and restaurants. This program is designed to be uh, subtle. It's not designed uh, for people to come in and drag people out of restaurants or cause any sort of uh, commotion or scene or embarrassment. There have already been more than 30 shootings this year in Surrey. Question is, will this new program make a difference? So far, only eight bars and restaurants are participating. Police won't say which ones. It takes a little time because it is a registration process. The business needs to register with the RCMP, so there's a little bit of training, a little bit of orientation, and so they want to get it right, make sure it's working. We've seen in Vancouver hundreds of restaurants involved in the program. Surrey Mounties say gyms may become part of the inadmissible patrons program. In 2013, a shooting happened right outside the Steve Nash Fitness Club in Surrey. Isn't it possible that you're just pushing the problem into another area, another city or municipality? Displacement is always a risk in terms of of public safety. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, for others, my responsibility is the city of Surrey. Uh, Full stop. Similar programs in Vancouver have been very successful. Surrey's attempt to accomplish the same is expected to hinge on more restaurants and bars buying into the program. Catherine Urquhart, Global News, Surrey. It's news that rubs salt in the wound of anyone frustrated with the ongoing delays over getting ride hailing in this province. Saskatchewan has now given the service a green light. Richard Zussman joins us live in Victoria with more on this. It's bound to add fuel to the fire here in B.C., Richard. No doubt, Sophie, it was the Christmas present many British Columbians wanted. An opportunity this holiday season to go in an Uber or a Lyft, have ride sharing here. But it is something that looks like a reality in Saskatchewan. And the reason it's important is there are many similarities between the two jurisdictions. In both BC and Saskatchewan, legislation has been passed to allow for ride sharing. Both jurisdictions have rules in place for higher license standards for drivers of ride sharing. And most importantly, both have public insurers. But ICBC hasn't yet created the package that is necessary in order to allow for ride sharing here. The real question is, why can Saskatchewan do it and British Columbia can't yet? I just want to make sure that we have uh, every option available so no one's driving drunk, especially around Christmas time. So for me, this and, uh, you know, and the medics I'm representing here today on, a, on my day job, this is, uh, this is something we wanted to see before Christmas. ICBC will be ready with an insurance package uh, to make sure that ride sharing is happening in the province. Um, I have total confidence in their ability to do that. They will do that. They'll be ready. 
Uh, and uh, certainly it's useful for us to, to learn from what Saskatchewan did as well, uh, to look at the product that they're offering, because they also have a public insurer in that province. Don't get too jealous of Saskatchewan yet. They still need to go through municipal city councils. There are meetings planned in the upcoming weeks in Regina and Saskatoon. But BC also has a lot of hurdles left, Sophie. The plan is to have ride sharing here for next fall. But there are still questions whether we'll actually have ride sharing here by Christmas of next year. All right, we'll see how it goes a year from now. Thanks, mm -hmm. Richard. Still waiting. Right now, though, a call to allow public transit users to bring their furry friends along for the ride up for debate at TransLink's quarterly board meeting today. Allowing pets is something a number of other big city transit systems have embraced, but Jill Bennett explains why TransLink doesn't like the idea. The current policy is clear. Pets on transit must be in a carry case, and that case must fit on your lap, with the exception of service dogs. But it appears many SkyTrain riders would like to see the rules relaxed. Would you feel comfortable though if there were dogs on leash on the SkyTrain car with you? Oh yes, I've got I've got pets. I love dogs, so yes. Sometimes people don't have a car and they're bringing their pets to the vet. People with pets having access to the transit system on its face could increase ridership. Or the issue was once again up for discussion at this TransLink board meeting. Margaret Halsey has been fighting for pets on transit for four years and was hoping it would finally happen. There are so many people um, that perhaps live in condos that don't have cars, have dogs that aren't small, you know, small ones you can put in that, but very well behaved. This video out of Seattle takes pets riding the bus to the extreme. While not all dogs there ride the system solo, they are allowed on transit. It's similar with the rules in other cities, including San Francisco, Boston and Toronto. So why not Vancouver? I would wonder whether or not it would be possible to allow uh, dogs outside of this criteria on a trial basis outside of rush hour on marked vehicles. But TransLink's own research shows riders are split on the idea, more opposed than for. Pets on transit can be a challenge. So I think at this point in time, uh, we believe that sticking with the current policy is probably in the, in the larger best interest of the system. That means for now, canine companions will remain caged. Jill Bennett, Global News. Well, getting around tomorrow night could get a little tricky. Yes, that's because it's possible, possible, we could see snow and maybe even freezing rain. Meteorologist Christy Gordon joins us now with the details. Christy. So, Chris, so while it's still unlikely we will see snow, I wouldn't be totally surprised if a few pockets saw some wet snow, mainly higher elevations. But we're not talking about uh, significant accumulations. You may just see a little bit of slush. Still, slush can be slippery on the roads. But really, the biggest concern is that we now have a risk of freezing rain, and this can be deadly. Almost any area away from the water has a slight chance of seeing a pocket of freezing rain. And the timeline for this, again, is late Friday through early Saturday morning. That's the timeline that we're watching, and I'll have more details when I come back. All right, thanks, Christy. Marine life in peril in a couple of different ways tonight. Fishing, tourism, and business leaders are fighting back against a federal government decision they say threatens their livelihoods. That decision gives orcas greater protection, but the business groups worry that extending the whale's critical habitat zone could be devastating to coastal communities. Kylie Stanton reports. 
74. That's the latest population count for the southern resident killer whales, and no one wants to see it drop any further. Whoa! On Wednesday, the federal government released a report outlining new rules in a bid to protect the species, extending the fisheries closure area off the southwest coast of Vancouver Island by designating more than 5,000 square kilometres critical habitat zone, stretching north past Euclulet and 60 kilometres out to sea. But that area is also a world-renowned sport fishing hotspot. Thank you for joining us today. Sparking a quick response from those with a vested interest in marine-based tourism. Businesses could close, jobs could be lost, tourism would stall. Statistics show recreational fishing generates nearly a billion dollars in direct revenue to the BC economy, along with 8,400 jobs. Got something on here. Vancouver Island represents a third of that. What could be in jeopardy, depending on what kind of measures Fisheries and Oceans Canada decides to bring in. It will, without question, economically devastate our community as well as other coastal communities on Vancouver Island. Now, the group that calls itself Thriving Orcas, Thriving Coastal Communities is hoping to work with the federal government to come up with solutions that protect the orcas, as well as the fishing and tourism sectors. There needs to be more research, and we need to take into account the knowledge of local and indigenous people. The folks that are out there and understand the movements of these whales better than anyone else. Fisheries and Oceans Canada did not respond to our request for comment today. While there's no definitive timeline in place, the pressure to act is on, and this group plans to be ready. We're going to fight. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. Now, on the other side of the debate, a new report says large industrial fishing operations are decimating the world's seabirds. As Linda Aylesworth tells us, the report says if nothing is done, a number of species could simply become extinct. There are hundreds of species of seabirds in the world, and they all have two things in common. They depend on the ocean for food, and they're in trouble. Oh, it's bad. Many species of seabirds are already in danger of extinction. At the University of British Columbia, fisheries biologist Deng Palomares decided to follow up a study that concluded seabirds are in decline by as much as 70% over the last few decades, with one that might explain why. We know already for a fact that seabirds are getting hungry. Why are they going hungry? They look to the global fishing industry. We thought that this must have something to do with the fact that fish that seabirds feed on are being taken by fisheries. Overfishing is not a new problem, but for decades it occurred in coastal waters. With fish stocks severely depleted there, it's been moving farther out to sea. You now have larger vessels that have larger capacities and so can extract larger numbers of fish. But it's not the taking of big fish that's a problem for seabirds. It's the smaller ones that they rely on, often referred to as trash fish. The trash fish that are supposed to be the, the prey or the food for seabirds are being taken out of the sea. They're made into pellets, fish pellets, and fed to aquaculture. The fish farming industry is cutting back on the amount of trash fish used in the pellets, but there's still enough demand to drive the fishing industry to harvest them. It is very tragic. We might not have any more seabirds by 2070. We have to do something. But what? We can decide not to, not to extract trash fish and leave the small fish out there for the seabirds. Linda Aylesworth, Global News.
Well, here's an example of the way Mother Nature can inspire awe, and it comes to us from the Mediterranean Sea. A pod of dolphins swimming alongside a boat as they feed on bioluminescent plankton. They seem to glow themselves, and that is actually the point. The tiny organisms emit the light as a form of defense, illuminating their prey, who themselves could then become more vulnerable to other predators. These dolphins survived that threat, though, feeding for about a half hour before leaving the boat. First responders rushed to an Amazon warehouse in New Jersey after a robot punctured a can of bear spray. 24 employees were taken to hospital, but no one was seriously hurt. Amazon has been under fire lately for the working conditions in its distribution centers. Police in Edmonton are investigating the deaths of two children. Officers were called to a report of an assault on a female and found a woman suffering from serious injuries. A few hours later, they were called to a man acting erratically and after arresting him, determined that he was related to the earlier assault. Officers returned to an apartment near where the woman was attacked and they found the bodies of the two children. Neighbors say they often heard yelling and arguing coming from the apartment. No word on the ages of the children. Well, it's not often an arrest in Vancouver makes international headlines, but the arrest at Vancouver Airport of the CFO of a Chinese telecom giant has sparked a full-blown international incident. As Global's Mercedes Stevenson reports, it's also dropped Canada right into the middle of the U.S.-China trade dispute. Markets around the world plunged with the high-profile arrest of Meng Wanzhou, a powerful executive with Chinese telecom giant Huawei. Meng is Chinese corporate royalty, a symbol of China's dominance in the tech market. But it was a Canadian symbol, the Mounties, who were ready and waiting for Meng at Vancouver International Airport with an outstanding warrant for her arrest on Saturday. The charges are unknown, but the United States has been probing whether Huawei violated U.S. sanctions against Iran. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said the decision to arrest Meng was not politically directed, although police gave the Prime Minister's office a heads up. We were advised uh, by them uh, with a few days' notice that this was uh, in the works, but of course uh, there was no uh, engagement or involvement uh, in the political level. The arrest is highly unusual and puts Canada firmly on side with the U.S. in a growing trade battle between America and China. So far, despite the saber-rattling from Beijing, there have been no concrete repercussions. It's unclear what the arrest will mean for Canada. The Trudeau government has been actively pursuing a free trade deal with China. Certainly on the rhetorical front, we've already seen pretty strong responses from China. However, whether or not they'll actually uh, retaliate, I think, in other ways, I think is uh, far from clear. China has declared Meng's detention a human rights violation and is demanding her immediate release. There are concerns now about potential backlash from China in the form of cyber attacks. But today, Canada's cybersecurity czar said the country is ready. We always are vigilant against any malicious activity. Um, the fact is, is it, it is constant. American lawmakers praised Canadian authorities and say they expect the Huawei executive will be extradited. After four days of tributes and memorials for George H.W. Bush, the 41st United States president made his final trip home today. After a funeral in Houston, Texans lined the 130-kilometer train route as a specially painted train carried Bush to his final resting place on the grounds of his presidential library. He'll be buried between his wife Barbara and his daughter Robin, who died of leukemia 
at the age of three. The Berlin Zoo is showing off its newest adorable resident. The polar bear cub was born six days ago to mother Tanya. The cub and her mother won't be seen out in the open until next spring. They'll stay in their enclosure for the winter. This birth is of special importance to the zoo after it lost its famous polar bear Canute back in 2011. So cute. Yes. In Health Matters tonight, a shocking story of a hockey injury that might have a lot of players thinking twice about wearing a neck guard. A 19-year-old player in Nova Scotia nearly died on the ice after being hurt in a freak accident. And a warning, some of the pictures in this story are tough to look at. Hockey rinks are home to many Canadian families during the harsh winter months. But going from the ice to the back of an ambulance isn't part of the game plan. It was a pretty bad injury. Like, uh, it was pretty deep, pretty uh, wide as well. Yeah, I was just in the corner and me and the other guy went down. And I remember seeing the skate come and got me in the neck. 27 stitches later, 19-year-old Bailey Frazier is lucky to be alive. Luckily, he didn't injure any major blood vessels because the carotid is very close to where his injury is. Uh, some of the major vessels of the neck, like the internal jugular as well, is also very, very close. The only protection Frazier had was Lady Luck. The skate cut him high enough on the neck that it missed all major blood vessels. Any lower could have been deadly. If it hits the jugular or it hits the carotid, then he could bleed out, and that's pretty serious. Feeling good, but a little sore. While Fraser says he's recovering, he's got a much different perspective on whether or not to wear a neck guard the next time he skates onto the ice. I'll probably wear my neck guard, and I'll keep playing, yeah. Alexa McLean, Global News, Halifax. All right, uh, meteorologist Christy Gordon joins us now <laughs> with a look at beautiful... Um, pictures out there because of the weather Christy but oh yeah in it's not nice ahead of us. That's right. So we, it's, we're focusing on Friday night for sure, but still enjoying cotton candy sunsets all across the province and the sunrises are beautiful as well. Look at this Christmas trees in the Dundarave area in the sun and breathtaking sunset from Ian in Vancouver. Oh, that is breathtaking. All right, we're in for a change though. So tomorrow we'll see increasing cloud through the afternoon hours. We'll warm up to about four degrees and then this band will push on shore uh, late Friday night. So mostly after 11 o'clock while we're sleeping on Saturday. Let's focus in on the south coast. So we're really talking about mainly a rainfall event, but there's a few higher elevation areas that could see some wet snow. The freezing level is down to about 500 meters. Maybe a few pockets may see wet snow even at lower elevations, but we're not expecting much. The main concern, as we mentioned, is the risk of freezing rain. And again, this is sort of overnight, so after midnight, likely right through until 6 a.m. on Saturday morning, where we're close enough to the freezing level that there could be a few pockets uh, that could see it. Freezing rain occurs when the rain, uh, the warm air rides up and over a cold pocket down below here. So the rain actually drives through that cold pocket and freezes on impact. If you ever run into a pocket of ice or, or um, 
black ice on the roads, what you want to do is keep your steering wheel straight. Don't brake, but just take your foot off the accelerator in order, in order to slow down, and that will help things somewhat. So here's your Friday, everyone. It really is going to be a mainly dry Friday. Most areas just seeing increasing cloud later on. Temperatures still cold. It's not until Friday night that we'll start to see things warm up a bit. So four degrees as our high during the day Friday, and we'll only drop off to about uh, two degrees overnight Friday into our Saturday. So there's that possibility of snow. Now here, I want to leave you with another sunset shot. This one from the Cam Cam Cambria Icefield, I think it said, which is just east of Stewart. Rob McLeod sent, sent us that. And there's actually a, a little camp just down there enjoying oh. that night sky. What a spot. Cold, Cold but beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you, Christy. So a Vancouver liquor store has unveiled its latest product, and while it might seem like a big to-do over a bottle of booze, there is a very good reason for it. It's called the Balveni 50 Marriage 0962. Now, the name doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, though. Uh, Jack Spear Wine Spirits says the single malt whiskey will melt in your mouth regardless. It's made with extremely rare liquid from four American oak casks aged 50 years or more. Who can wait that long? <laughs> the price? Anywhere from $75,000 to $100,000 per bottle. To shepherd uh, a whiskey to uh, 50 years old is actually very difficult. Uh, and on top of that, to make it something that's delicious and palatable, uh, you're working against nature in a couple different ways. Hmm. Well, Jax says its single bottle of Balvenie is one of only 110 bottles worldwide. Win tonight? It's possible. Oh, anything's possible. You're right. It's very right? possible. Yeah, that's positive outlook. Well, this is, you know, this is one of those games where you hope that, you know, if you're the Canucks at Nashville comes in, they're number one in the West. Oh, well, it's just the Canucks. This will be easy. And then you catch them being overconfident. Then again, they could just play the way they normally play and kick the you-know-what out of them. Uh, yes, the Canucks are in a bit tougher than usual tonight. Nashville is in the building. And while Canuck Nation, the fans, aren't really sweating the fact Vancouver has lost 12 of their last 13, to the guys who actually play for the Canucks, this is not a lot of fun. Always remember, the players do not care about the draft. They don't care how high Vancouver will pick. They know playing well and winning is the best way to keep a job in the NHL. So, how does this team keep from getting completely lost in all the doom and gloom of losing night after night, especially after such a promising first month. Over to Granlin. And now Zucker scores! No doubt about that one. So the woes continue for the Vancouver Canucks, who had the lead. With just one win in the last 13 games, it would be pretty understandable for the Canucks to be down on themselves. It's like that constant cold rain that makes up most of a Vancouver winter. It's just downright depressing. You know, it's something obviously you carry home with you every single day, and it, it kind of it's the elephant in the room, 24/7. Uh, you, know, you can't get down on yourselves, and that's when things go really bad, and start feeling sorry for yourself. And you know, I think the best way is, as a coach is to be honest with them. And honestly, the Canucks haven't been terrible the past month. Eight of their 12 losses have been by one goal. But they find new ways to lose games that are right there for the taking. One game it's bad goaltending, the next a poor penalty kill, or just puck luck that has totally disappeared. You know, we showed some clips even today where when things are going well, this puck goes in the net. And when you're doing this in the offensive zone, 
it's going to go in. And when it goes, when, when things start to go your way, all of a sudden you're on the roll and you're at the other end of, of it and you're winning these games instead of losing them. And I think that's part of what we're trying to teach a lot of our, our group right now, especially our young guys. The young guys are the future. Pedersen, Besser, Horvath. They're the ones who may look back on this misery one day and say, maybe it wasn't a bad thing to go through it. When you, you go through uh, tough times or the hard times, you know, it's that's when you your character, um, you know, gets refined and, and you find out kind of what you're made of and, and come out, um, you know, on top and a better player and a better person. You know, losing is a hard lesson. Um, and, and it's... It's not something that you learn to accept, uh, and I think I think that's the biggest thing with them is they're you know they're as frustrated as everybody um, with these losses. Um, you know that fire is in the room, and, and they're the ones uh, they're the ones sparking it. The Seahawks are seven and five. They have four games to go. At the moment, they're in a playoff spot. They have Minnesota at home Monday. Then the 49ers, Chiefs, and Cardinals. Certainly the 49ers and Cardinals games are winnable for Seattle. And the only road game of the four is in San Francisco. Some of the reasons, or maybe one of the reasons Seattle has excelled, is it doesn't give the ball away very much. Nobody in the NFL has turned the ball over less than Seattle. Just five interceptions and four fumbles. But here's the most interesting stat. Seattle has the fewest passing plays run this year and the most running plays. And there's a good reason why Pete Carroll likes to run way more than pass. Um, because it's the best way to not screw it up. <laughs> really, you know, it's the best way to play the game. And it, because the, the games are always lost. They're always lost. You know, you make errors. And, uh, and that's why that turnover issue is, is of paramount importance to us. It's the most important thing that we, we talk. It's the first thing I ever say to our team. Every single year we get together and we start. Every year I start there. When, when we don't turn the football over, we, our winning percentages are ridiculously high. Not even being in the plus, just when we don't turn it over. And, uh, and when we're in the plus, our numbers are phenomenal. You know, and they always have been. The biggest reason the Raptors are number one in the NBA is because of number two, Kawhi Leonard. We don't yet know if he'll sign a new contract and stay in Toronto beyond this season, but his presence is making the Raptors the favorites to represent the East in the NBA Finals. And if he can stay healthy all the way to and all the way through the playoffs, Toronto might even have a chance to win it all. What do you think it's going to be like when you say we're at the point with Kawhi where he feels comfortable? <laughs> well, that's funny. He's, he's getting there, right? I think that he's seeing a little more spring in the legs as well um, and the three ball. That Those things are kind of related. One thing we have seen so far is how Kawhi Leonard seems to raise his game and his point totals when the Raptors are facing serious competition. For him, it's it's interest level, right? I think I think he... He, um, you know, like, like all of us, there's, there's bigger games than others, and, and uh, he's an immense talent. He really, he really is an immense talent, and when the, the stakes go up a little bit, he, he's going he's gonna to play his hand a little harder. Great defensive player, offensive player. I read somewhere, I think his hands are 11 inches. Wow. That's big. <laughs> that's big. That's what I heard. Not afraid. He's got no fear. No fear. Well, no if fear I had 11-inch hands, I'd be no, not afraid of anybody either. 
good point. But I don't. Thanks, Squire. Here's Jay Durant now with a preview of Global News at 11. Jay. Thank you, Chris. The city of Vancouver is holding an open house tonight as it plans for a two-way separated bike lane on Richard Street. The protected path is getting lots of support from the biking community, but as you can imagine, opposition is fierce because if the project goes ahead, it will eliminate dozens of parking spaces and a whole lane of traffic along the busy corridor. And the always festive dueling choirs competition is underway in Gastown. We'll show you who won tonight. How come we didn't enter a comp <laughs> or the team this year? Well, for obvious reasons, if you've ever heard us sing. Wow, yeah. speak for yourself. <laughs> I know, you're better. <laughs> you got to be better. Yeah. Thanks, Jay. Still ahead, a fascinating look back at the early humble history of Vancouver International Airport. But first, here's Kasia Badurka with five things to do with the family on the weekend. Kasia? Yep, with less than 20 days till Christmas, holiday events are in full swing. We first bring you to Canada Place Vancouver, where you'll take in the nostalgic tradition of the Woodward's windows, enjoy Canada's North Light display, the sales of light, and the festive avenue of trees. Dreams take off at the Vancouver Education and Career Fair. Anyone looking to kick off a new job should go, as this is the province's largest career development fair. Expect countless displays and several info sessions on starting a new path. How about a magical holiday concert with Bobs and Lolo? Make family memories dancing and singing along with the duo, then stick around for face painting, cookie decorating, and a portrait with Santa. Head to the country and explore the vintage barn market. Abbotsford's Man Farms Christmas Market is now a three-weekend affair full of vendors, taste, and cheer. Enjoy one of the finest concert bands in the country and get into the Christmas spirit. The Nanaimo Concert Band is presenting their annual Christmas charity concert on Sunday with donations going to the Salvation Army. For more, go to globalnews.ca slash five things. Well, the main terminal of Vancouver International Airport is celebrating its 50th birthday this year and Global News, then it was called Chan TV, but Global News was there when it opened. Global's Jordan Armstrong takes us back in time to show us just how much has changed since the airport first launched. So this uh, terminal building is designed for a 10-year period. In other words, in 10 years from now, it should just be comfortable. It would actually be more than 20 years before YVR would outgrow its original international terminal. When it opened in 1968, even the basics of how to use the airport had to be explained to people, including NewsHour reporter Mark Raines. Because the aircraft pulls right up to one of the fingers and you or directly yes. from the finger to the aircraft? That's right. Each loading position has a, a passenger loading bridge. Passenger will be able to enter and exit from the aircraft at the second level without going up and down stairs. The official opening was October the 25th, 1968. And it began with God Save the Queen. Always. Richard Cook was there. He's worked or volunteered at YVR for nearly 62 years. He remembers the days when there was no security. Relatives could walk with passengers right up to the gate. In busy flights, you can barely get in the door because all the relatives are there and they're all crying and hugging and kissing and waving. And you could smoke in the airport. You could smoke, you could smoke on the plane, too. And the ashtrays were made in British Columbia? They're here made in Vancouver. They're handmade, you know. Are they? And they're over $2. Uh -huh. There were only a few dining options back then. Now there are dozens. Today, international passengers arrive to waterfalls and totem poles. Fifty years ago, they were sent through a dull underground tunnel. All passengers coming from the foreign countries are must be kept sterile and separate from the public until they pass through customs. 
lightening the building and, and making it much more earthquake-proof. The 1968 terminal is now the domestic terminal. It's been heavily renovated, but if you know where to look, you can find vestiges of the past. And we have the beautiful orange palette, and the original colors were orange, avocado, and brown. Hard to picture it now, but in 1968, there were actually parking stalls and meters right outside the entrance to the terminal. There was also a parking lot in the basement of the building. The daily maximum was $3. Now you'll pay 43 bucks for four hours. A lot has changed over the years, but Richard Cook is still here. You love your, your job. I do. It's not a job, it's fun. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. Pretty, so neat. Pretty sure I passed by Richard a whole bunch of times. Exactly. I'll stop and say hi next time. Exactly. We're in there. Yeah, That's great. Cool. All right. Uh, final word on the weather, Christy. And okay. boy, it's going to be wintry this weekend, it looks like. Yeah, there's a chance of it. Yeah. So tomorrow, increasing cloud in the afternoon. Still a dry day tomorrow, but it's Friday night, likely after about 11 o'clock, that we have the possibility of a small band of precipitation. So we're not talking about a lot of moisture here, but certainly there's a chance we could see a little bit of wet snow. I'm not expecting any major accumulations. The biggest concern, I think, for the roads would be the risk of freezing rain. All right. Keep it right here for the latest updates. And thank you very much for watching. Have a good night. Good night, all.